Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. It's getting colder here in Chicago, and people are working to provide housing for asylum seekers and folks without stable housing right now. But the clock's ticking. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Housing in the city is strained, and the so-called winterized base camps to house migrants haven't been built yet. Since asylum seekers have been arriving in the city, there's growing tension between them and the existing unhoused in Chicago. But there's a clear need for more space to be able to help everyone. So what's in the works to bring much-needed services to the thousands of people who are unhoused? Well, we wanted to check in with the people who work directly with migrants and unsheltered Chicagoans to understand the current situation and explore the ways we talk about this crisis. We spoke with Dr. Evelyn Figueroa, director of the Pilsen Food Pantry. Lydia Wong, a volunteer for Shy Welcome. That's a grassroots mutual aid group helping migrants at temporary shelters and police stations. And Diana Mitchell, the chief program officer at Inner Voice, an organization that supports people experiencing homelessness. Now, one of the most recent developments on this issue was that the Johnson administration announced that warming buses will be sent to 16 locations to keep migrants and asylum seekers warm. So I started by getting Lydia's reaction to that news. That is wonderful. There were were warming buses that did go to many of the stations last night. We did find out this morning that some stations did not have them. Um, And we did find from some migrants that uh, the buses, uh, per their report, weren't actually warm. Um, And so some of them actually left to be able to lie down um, because the the warmth that they were providing wasn't actually great. So we're really excited that they're coming. And especially as it gets colder with families being outside, we're happy for them. Um, But working out some of the kinks in the system still. Yeah, those are big kinks. If the buses aren't actually warm, what are your thoughts, Dr. Figueroa? Yeah, there are 22 police stations. So 16, um, 16 warming bus stations will will not meet the meet the need in the gap. Um, we're collecting a lot of uh, sleeping bags, uh, yoga mats, you know, all sorts of bedding materials to help people bundle up as much as they can. And I did see people trying to think about ways that they're going to winterize tents um, being suggested on our listservs. Yeah. Well, last time we talked to you, doctor, this was back in September. And we know that a lot has changed with new arrivals, even in the last couple of weeks. So catch us up. How have things been? People continue to come in droves. It's it's really very challenging. Um, I was asked the other day if, if I understood where all the emergency shelters were, and I could not answer that question. So we have a lot of people in a lot of places and still lacking the CBOs that are partnered with um, the new emergency shelters. We have one just a few blocks from the Pilsen Food Pantry, and we've asked for weeks um, to go in and do uh, do a site visit because we have folks coming on foot from that shelter, which is about uh, six blocks away from our, our space and uh, hundreds of people that are coming Um, lacking very basic items, saying they don't have enough food. So we'd really like to be able to, in good faith, go inside and and be helpful. Yeah. You mentioned also supporting five mobile health units. 
going to, to shelters and police stations. Any changes made to that? Yes. The students went back to school, so they're going on Saturday. So the mobile migrant health team continues to go out, and they but they concentrated on Saturdays. Um, there have been some gains that we've made. Uh, community health, who came before, um, has given slots inside of their clinic so that we can directly uh, coordinate follow-up care. Um, additionally, we're making a similar arrangement at UI Health, University of Illinois, so that uh, so that there are less phone calls going on during the week. Uh, we got uh, Mobile Migrant Health also got uh, a couple very large grants to help with co-pays, transportation, more supplies that we're really glad about. Can you talk, Lydia, about what you've been doing most days volunteering on the West Side? So most days I start my day off at 6 a.m. responding to emails, Facebook messages, WhatsApp chats, um, and then I am generally picking up and dropping off donations, trying to get things where they need to go across the city uh, for police the entire day. In particular? Uh, in particular, to the volunteer leads at different police stations. Mm-hmm. Um, so the volunteers are the ones who know what's needed at each station and who have to keep a supply for when we have 40 or 50 people dropped off at a station at 9 p.m. at night yeah. uh, to ensure that people have the most basic items coats, gloves, socks. Um, some people arrive in T-shirts. Uh, and so that's that's usually my entire day. It'll usually end up being a, a 10 to 12 hour day every day. Uh, I try to reserve four to five hours on Sundays where I am not doing migrant work. Uh, but otherwise, that that's pretty much my life these days. Let's bring you in here, Diana, and clear up some terms. When we say that people without... Um stable housing. That can be everything from people couch surfing, right? Correct. Uh, staying at a friend's home or staying at shelters to living outside on the Correct. streets, right? So there's a range. There is a range. And in, in, in um, Intervoice, we're uh, uh, government funded. So depending on the funder will dictate what the homeless uh, definition means. Um, right here in the city of Chicago, doubled up is uh, uh, considered homeless, not having a key, not being on um, uh, assigned lease or being a part of that lease uh, is considered being homeless. You and your team at Intervoice, you're, you're working frantically to, to make sure that those uh, who don't have proper shelter, that they're getting it because that colder weather, as I alluded to at the top, it's coming. It's just around the corner. I would argue it's here, right? When What I felt this morning on my way to work, absolutely, it's here. So what kind of services are there for people who are living outside? Well, I can say that um, this year, the city of Chicago, uh, $60 million came in from the federal government, um, from HUD, to provide services, housing services, triage services to the unsheltered population. Um, Right now, I know that agencies, including Intervoice, is gearing up to begin housing those individuals. Um, within Chicago, we have a system in place that prioritizes certain individuals depending on um, their health condition, their age, uh, the status of how long they've been homeless mm. will determine how quickly they move through the system and match to a housing provider. Um, and usually that can take um, it can happen in one day or it could take up to 60 days, depending on um, um their pre- the, the individual's preference. As you talk about uh, sort of the, the separation here, can you help us understand further? Because I, I know the city has different paths for meeting the needs of unhoused Chicagoans as well as new arrivals, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can explain that a bit further, Diana, because uh, what my confusion is, are there separate shelters or units of housing for the homeless 
than new arrivals? Like how, how does that work? Yeah. So when, when you say different needs, I, homeless is one need. It doesn't matter if you're a migrant or you're a citizen, unsheltered or living in a, a homeless shelter itself. Um, what I can speak to is right now, Intervoice has probably have about eight, maybe no more than 10 migrants that's been referred to us for housing. Uh, I believe six or seven of them are in Chicago public schools and have been identified as being homeless. Um, so when you talk about the need, it's a cultural difference. Um, that cultural difference is they may not speak English, so we may need to tap into other services to make sure that, you know, there's no uh, contradiction or confusion in what the next steps are in regards to assisting them. Yeah. Uh, Doctor, your thoughts on that? I mean, this uh, cultural need that Diana is talking about. There's a lot for folks to adapt to. Uh, Chicago is uh, is a city that we need, you know, we don't have phone books anymore. We don't have paper maps. No. Folks, uh, folks really need to be connected to the system to understand it. The numbering system for our streets is um, confusing even to me, a, long, a lifelong uh, Chicago resident. Um, so I think it's I think it's very difficult for folks that are challenged by language yeah. and also by um, connectivity. Uh, folks don't have you know unlimited cell data. Many don't have phones. They're communicating through WhatsApp if they can get to someone. So there are definitely some huge barriers that folks have to deal with. Then once they come, it's finding, being comfortable in a neighborhood, feeling welcome, finding food that makes sense, that their children will eat. Remember, a third of the new arrivals are, are basically children. So even though adults will adapt to to things a lot better, children won't. They'll just refuse to eat. And there's, you know, nothing worse for a parent than not feeding your child. Yeah. So we're hearing the city doesn't have shelter space for new arrivals. Is that the case, Dr. Figueroa? That is the case. Um, they, uh, what, what was the point of time reference, Lydia? The, just uh, two weeks ago, it was 3,900 people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that were staying in the police stations at, at the airport. Um, I thought there were 800 people at O'Hare right now. I know the numbers move around, but the issue is that folks keep arriving. So, um, you know, in the spring, when this all started, I remember us being aghast at 500 people being at police stations. And then I remember for D12, us being told to brace ourselves for 300 yeah. people with, you know, one one porta potty. Wow. Lydia, p- pick up on that, because, you know, as, as the doctor mentioned, there are asylum seekers right now staying at O'Hare. Um, you don't work directly with people at the airport, but tell us what you've heard about it. Yeah, and one that I do want to make is that when we're talking about people staying at police station, is the majority of asylum seekers, new arrivals, there are also unhoused Chicagoans staying there as well. Um, this issue with lack of shelter is not a new problem, um, but the spotlight is on it now because of the volume of new arrivals and the lack of systems there to provide for people. As someone working in this space, what are your thoughts on that? The fact that the sp- mm-hmm. there's a spotlight now. Yeah, yeah. There well, are people who have been struggling mm-hmm. for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's this piece of feeling like we're very reactionary, where if we had a robust social support system, we might not be in the same level of crisis that we were if we already had provided care and created systems to care for people uh, who already experience homelessness here. Um, we would have those systems built in place rather than trying to build them now as we are moving. Um, and so I think it it really highlights the way that we need to do better in creating a community of care for all people. Um, and that 
that if we encompass everyone, um, then that really does mean everyone. And we're prepared for these types of situations. So we want to acknowledge uh, as we, we have this conversation, there's a tension within some neighborhoods, the ones that have been historically disinvested in. And some residents are concerned that city resources are going to support migrants. I want to play a clip now from Mayor Johnson. This is during his recent budget address, the moment where he acknowledged this. What current residents need and deserve from our city is not the same as what new arrivals need in this moment. But we must meet all demands if we truly love all people. Just to clarify again, Mayor Johnson is specifically referring to residents of historically disinvested communities. What's your reaction to that, Diana? Mm-hmm. Um The black community, disinvested uh, uh, communities, right, um, has some areas do lack the resources and some areas just don't have the resources that once was there um, that they should have like their food deserts. They don't have enough quality food. And the, the stores that do, that are present, the, the prices are really high. You know, the then you have community centers for children the the number of schools within the the community that um that can hold enough you know give adequate education and not be crowded in those things are lacking in the black community so when when a community speaks out they want to be heard they want you to hear like here we are again you know so please help us understand how you're not going to forget about us again and that's speaking from a black I grew up born and raised in the city of Chicago mm-hmm. uh, with my six children. I was homeless. The very organization that I currently work for now is the organization that took me in and shelter and assisted me with finding employment and housing. So I've been there. I understand what's being said. I've lived in some of these communities that right now today still does not have the resources that's needed to keep them thriving. What was that like for you in real time going through it? It was scary. It, it was it was a lot of things that was um, that I just didn't quite understand. Um, you hear people tell you to trust the process, but you've never met them a day in your life. Um, but I do know that I just kept putting one foot in front of the other. And slowly over time, I began to trust the person sitting next to me because it was a person that was just like me. So um, when you talk about people with lived expertise, yeah. those individuals can help you if only you allow them to so that's 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 my take on it but when you talk about the different needs yeah but we're all human so are we supposed to look the other way it doesn't feel good because they've looked the the other way for a very long time now you're asking us to look the other way and it's very it's hard it's hard not to speak out yeah anything to add doctor wow diane diane that was beautiful um it is such a challenge. There's so much to balance um, in all of it and trying to find the humanity and trying to recognize that people have needs and trying to not forget our mistakes of the past and try to build something sustainable is is such an opportunity. I keep trying to frame this as opportunities, even though it feels like complete chaos. And I agree, Lydia, with how react- reactive it all is. Mm-hmm. And it didn't it doesn't have to be this way. We we had the same thoughts at the onset of COVID, when we had to debundle all the shelters, we literally had the same discussion. And, you know, we 
we are a first world nation that doesn't prioritize social services when we know that addressing basic human needs and making people safe helps everything else. So I really hope that we'll use what's happening right now as an opportunity to invest in communities, to hear people, to acknowledge and, and make, and, and make um, reparations that are really very overdue. Lydia, there's, there's more to this problem than just housing, right? I mean, there are other intersecting issues. As we know, there's immigration policy. We have barriers to employment, barriers to health care. Food insecurity is an issue. What are the biggest problems that stick out to you the most? Wow, the biggest problems. I mean, that's really all of them. Um, all I of think, the above. I think there's there's all of these problems. And to me, the biggest barrier in actually solving them is a reliance on rhetoric rather than actually moving towards any change. We hear a lot of people speaking about needs for change and needs of solutions, but that's that's a lot of what we hear and we don't actually see action. And so I think the biggest barrier is actually the will to make any sort of change. Um, that's mm. why we see these disinvested neighborhoods that never have any reinvestment. People love to talk about it all the time, but we don't actually see the action. Um, and so until we're able to move people, whether individuals or corporations or government, um, but move people into the will to change, change, then there's no use to even kind of explore solutions. So to me, that is the biggest barrier. And you say there are people love to talk about this, but it's like if there are all these interlocking issues, as we just described, how do we talk about this? I mean, is it fair to talk about this as a housing issue? What is important to not overlook when we have these conversations? Yeah, I think I think the piece is the humanity. Um, when we're looking at what what would I want for a healthy, fulfilling, vibrant life? Um, and so why are we not moving towards that for all people? Um, and I think that is able to help encompass many of these intersecting pieces where people don't just need a place to lie their head. People need something to be able to um, have fulfillment in life, to be able to find meaningful work, to be able to support and sustain their family. And this is not just new arrivals, right? This is everyone in Chicago mm -hmm. uh, seeking to live their best lives. Give me your thoughts, Diana, on how these housing crises are, are framed. How do we stop it from being this us versus them issue? So that's a tough question. Us against them. It's it's kind of hard, but uh, but going back to the mayor's office, wondering um, if he will ever or if that office will consider bringing all of the CEOs from the nonprofit organizations that's been working um, for a number of years right here in the city of Chicago doing the very work, hearing it from the people that have the boots to the ground right now, um, like how can we make this uh, shift? the uh, conflict that's happening, the divide that mm -hmm. is already in process. Because there's a responsibility the on the providers who are working yeah. with, with folks, right, to make it feel less like us versus them. And there's also a responsibility from us, the media. Absolutely. So how do yeah. we how do we do that? We we understanding that what we're looking at right now is is a situation that has to be addressed. If we can come out to common ground, how do we do that? Get everyone to the table. Hear everyone. Hear the people that the media. Hear it from them because 
sometimes the media, if not all the time, they're right there. They get to see what's happening Mm -hmm. and they can literally, they tell the story. They tell us the story that we don't know about. Then you have these nonprofit, you have the nonprofit organizations and faith-based organizations that's out here that's doing the work, not just with the unsheltered or in the black community, every community, as well as the migrants. We're already working with them. That's the bottom line. So if we can focus on the problem, we can stay focused on the problem, but it's time for us to come to a solution because the bottom line is the migrants are here and it doesn't look like they're going anywhere anytime soon. We're back now with more Reset. I am your host, Sasha Ann Simons, and we have been talking about the need to find permanent shelter for the thousands of asylum seekers who are sleeping at police stations and for the cities unhoused. Some call this lack of available housing a crisis. Our panel today, Lydia Wong, a volunteer for Shy Welcome. That's a mutual aid group working with new arrivals on the west side of Chicago. Dr. Evelyn Figueroa, who's director of the Pilsen Food Pantry. And Diana Mitchell, the chief program officer at Inner Voice, a group that provides transitional housing to families, veterans, and people getting out of jail. So, uh, Dr. Figueroa, let's let's pick this up where we left off, shall we? And I'd love to get your thoughts as well on, as I mentioned a moment ago, this this housing crises and and how they're being framed. Um, this us versus them issue. What have you been seeing and hearing, and, and how does it all make you feel? It's it's very challenging in um, in Pilsen where we do uh, where our hub is. There has been uh, a lot of arguing on the community pages about this. Someone last week was trying to gather coats, and it got very very ugly very quickly. Uh, with folks saying, "Well, what about me? What about me?" Acting like this is a zero sum game, and people kept reminding each other, "If you don't want to, res- you know, if you don't want to donate, just don't respond to the post. You don't have to get involved. No one's coercing you to do that." But people seemed very upset and that they were shorted something. I was at a community meeting when we were opening the shelter at Cermak and Halstead. Very similar yelling, uh, upset feelings, anger, um, a, a very difficult to carry on a dialogue. A lot of us are very fixed in our corners and, and unwilling to yield a, a, a really a sense of people being cheated. Um, we experienced things like that at the Pilsen Food Pantry when we expanded um, we expanded our offerings and got a lot of folks from Chinatown. Almost half of our clients are from our, um, of Asian descent. And the Latinos were, were unhappy with it at the time. And we really had to keep reminding them that there was enough for everyone, that if, if more people come, we, we build further capacity. And we've been able to do that. And even now with the migrants, I'm very fortunate that I'm not getting those complaints since we now have seven to 800 visitors a week at the Pilsen Food Pantry in addition to our outreach. So um, I think it's important to keep reassuring people of what's available and helping people navigate this very, very complex system. Lydia, but it, it makes sense that many people feel like it's an us versus them, doesn't it? It does. And I can understand how people feel cheated because many neighborhoods in Chicago have been cheated out of the investment that they deserve and have been exploited for decades and decades. And so historically, there has been this cheating of neighborhoods in Chicago with reparations that have never been made. Um, But this anger is displaced now onto the migrants who are receiving what they need. Um, And so I can 
totally understand how people can be angry, but I feel like the anger is displaced from the people who have been responsible for the disinvestment, the people who haven't mm-hmm. been taking action for reparations, and it's now being displaced onto this other group of people simply because they are getting what those in the neighborhoods have been working for and fighting for for mm-hmm. so long. Um, so I understand this anger, but how are we going to make it productive? So the bottom line is we got a lot of people who need housing and they need housing right now. Winter's just around the corner. Who do you think needs to be taking responsibility for leading this effort, Diana? I think um, first it starts with, um, I'm going to say to put politicians, right? They at have which a, level? At every level. At mm-hmm. every level. City, state, county, federal every level because they're here. So we need to get into the solution. Right. Um, And then I I think, you know, because politicians have followers, right. They have them, they come, they will, if you, some of them, if they say this is what we're going to do, they support them because they've been proven to follow through with what they say they're going to do. So now we need to get back to that. They get involved. I I attended a uh, open house, not open house, an open forum in one of the communities, and only one individual that was there spoke about the migrant situation. It was all about what I've done, this is what we're going to do, and this is where we're headed. But forgetting the fact that we got some addition, additional uh, mm-hmm. things going on here, and please tell us where the resources are coming. You know, when are they coming? How are they coming? Where are they coming from? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a number. So who should lead that? Everyone, to be honest with you. But right here in the city of Chicago, I think it starts with the organizations that's been doing the work already. Need to be in conversation with these politi- politicians yeah. to in order to so that they can understand and hear it from the people on the ground that this is how how we could do it. Not dismissing anything from anyone else that's already in place, but how can we work together to help, um, you know, close in that gap? Mm. to help decrease that divide because uh, I, I, I my my thoughts are no matter how much we try it's still going to be some level of division there you know but how can we decrease it and the only way we can do that is that we come together and understand that uh, uh we're all human yeah. and there are needs you're nodding your head there Lydia you agree yeah, I think there's a piece of coming together. I think there's a piece of collaboration. For, um, for long-term permanent solutions? For long-term solutions. permanent solutions. Right now, the city does not receive enough support from the state or federal mm-hmm. government um, in terms of funding, which leaves the city sort of hung out to dry. Um, but the city also needs to be in collaboration with volunteers. Right now, in the shelters, uh, when people are moved into shelters, there is no system for volunteers to be able to assist people. And so uh, people who are in shelters have no access to things like clothing, to food, to nutrition nutrition, to support. Um, and so there's a real concern that as the city moves towards these larger tent cities, um, that volunteers are going to be shut out ultimately to the detriment of the new arrivals. Not that we want to continue doing uh, as much of the workload as we're doing, but we have successfully assisted with thousands of people for months at this point in time, far more efficiently, I will say, than other organizations mm-hmm. or the city of Chicago. Um, and so we'd love to be able to continue to do that as people move towards these longer term solutions. Yeah. Doctor, what role do you see the city playing in this uh, in this issue of housing? Um, and do you feel supported by the city? 
No. <laughs> I think that I, pause I hate, told us it was going to be. A I no. hate to. I hate to say no. I I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but we've we've been working with OEMC since the spring, um, asking for transparency in in um, assignments, understanding who the key stakeholders are. For instance, for the mobile uh, migrant medical response that we put together, and just really struggling. Uh, struggling to have to have really clear communication. Additionally, at the police stations, we made a recommendation really early on for the city to fund a liaison that would be at every police station to help avoid duplicating services to coordinate the CBOs showing up. Yesterday, I got a random call from the Salvation Army that was at D12, and they were like, we brought food. And I said, we have a food schedule for D12. There are other places that don't have food and it's so this, lines getting crossed the logistics uh, the what the city Wires could help better. yeah help with could could be logistics could be also ensuring accountability in the organizations that they've that that are already contracted to do work i mean there are emergency shelter medical teams that are funded by the city of chicago who have never walked into a police station because according to them it's not in their contract which I find difficult to believe, but whatever. Um, so it's, it's. I think the city, I know it's hard. It's it's bureaucratic. It's multi-billion, you know, multi-billion dollar budget. I know that this is really hard. I'm running a tiny budget at the pantry and um, and we're little and, and I'm, I'm grateful for how nimble we can be. Um, but it's, there, there's so much waste. It's very clear. There are redundant, redundant services we, you know, streets and sanitation does not get to any of these emergency um, sheltering spaces as much as it should. We don't have the city could get more toilets for these places. I mean, it's just we're trying to do infection control. There's a norovirus outbreak and everyone's sharing the same one toilet. Norovirus lives for like two days on a dry surface. There's no hand washing station mm. next to the porta potty. Like, this is not how we treat, we should treat anyone. I mean, all of us go by the viaducts, all of us see the overpasses and see all the overflowing garbage. And that's because people in good faith drop off things, but it may not fit people. There may not be people there to eat all the food. The food goes bad. And then it just sits there in the box in the recycling bin. It's always like that. The recycling bin is always full. And, you know, we could do, the city could invest in keeping the places cleaner helping you know helping organize the donations keeping track of who's there and and really holding accountable the whole state because the whole state really should be chipping in here we're a sanctuary state mm. and yet now it seems like we're sanctuary chicago we recently talked on reset with don washington don is the uh, director of the chicago housing initiative and it's a group that advocates for low income chicagoans and it works to expand rental options for them one of the things he said was uh, big changes are needed at the federal level to address this. Let's listen. The refugee crisis is a national problem. And the problem that we are facing is that unless the federal government grants these people refugee status, status and brings the resources of the Office of Refugee Resettlement to the city of Chicago, the city of Chicago on its own and every other municipality that's dealing with this will fail to do so. Since we last spoke, uh, some Venezuelans were granted temporary protected status, which will speed up the process of uh, applying for work permits. But any thoughts there, Lydia? Yeah, I love 
the way that Don is able to take a big picture look at things um, and the the leadership he brings to Chicago Housing Initiative. Um, I think that he is right that there needs to be federal changes. Um, the move towards granting more Venezuelans, not all of them, um, but more Venezuelans temporary access to temporary protective status is a good move. Uh, however, right now it costs like approximately $500 for one person to apply for temporary protective status along with the work permit. Um, and anyone 14 or older needs to pay for the work permit um, at the time of applying for temporary protective status, or at least it's recommended. So if we're looking at a family of four trying to apply with two adults, and let's say they have both kids who are teenagers, uh, we're looking at needing $2,000 uh, for people to apply for this temporary protective status to be able to then um, receive work permits and be able to work. And that's not even counting uh, any attorney fees if they're not able to get into mm-hmm. a free legal clinic. Yeah. Um, and all of our pro bono immigration attorneys are are swamped. Um, and so without more changes like granting fee waivers on a federal level mm-hmm. or providing funds for immigration uh, legal assistance um, to allow people to apply for these things, it's not actually having the impact that it seems like it should. Let's also talk about Bring Chicago Home, Diana. This is an, an ordinance that would restructure the taxes on buildings sold in Chicago for over a million dollars. Now it's projected to help provide housing to 68,000 unhoused or housing unstable Chicagoans. This is through the real estate transfer tax. Inner Voice is one of the many groups supporting this ordinance. So uh, what do you want to see the money raised here through the tax go towards? Exactly what it's meant to do. (laughs) Exactly what it's meant to do, regardless of who is accessing that housing. There's a need for housing. There's a shortage of housing here in in the city. And this is something that will help everyone. It, It should help everyone. But, you know, I could see for someone to say, okay, yeah, it's meant for us. Um, and that's that us against them again. I think a clear understanding of uh, that more resources are needed now more than ever than when uh, uh, um, this bill has w- was put in place, right? So bringing on sixty, would you say sixty eight thousand more units? Sixty eight thousand. So we point, probably yeah. need two hundred thousand more now. Hmm. You know, so more money needs to come into the system to make sure that this happens. Um, we talk about. Uh, people uh, uh, that needs the jobs, that want to work. Thank you, Lydia, for explaining that process to us. So we know now that it's going to take a little bit longer for this to happen, uh, for them to be able to get into employment. We know that they are eligible for housing. We know that we, you know, as us Intervoice being a service provider, we don't have to ask for uh, immigration status. We don't have to ask about that. So there's no barriers there. The only issue is, where the, where the unit's coming from, you know? So when you talk about federal change, landlords have the right to say no. Yeah, They have the right to say so. It, it can is, is there bringing on additional units, you know, even the landlords need to come to the table to talk about some of this, you know? They need to be a part of the discussion and help understand that we understand it's business for you, uh, but what we need from you, real estate agents, we need something to help, you know, uh, 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 curve this, help decrease the number, increase the number of units. And we can only do that with them uh, because they're denying migrants. They're denying some of the unhoused population as well because of their mm-hmm. status. You know, they could be criminal background, uh, negative crim- uh, uh, credit histories, um, or they may 
have or appear to have some form of psychological issue, um, behavioral health, that is. You know, and then you have the migrants that come in. One landlord called me. They say, hey, we took in four, but now they have 15 individuals in a household. So I think through this conversation, we've made it clear, right? There's this huge need overall for new arrivals and existing unhoused Chicagoans here. But the resources, they just aren't there, right? So given the lack of options that we've discussed, real quick around the table, tell us what you're prioritizing, whether it's warm clothing, whether it's supplies, and tell us what you need, like in terms of donations. I'll I'll start with you, doctor. Well, first of all, cash is king. Um, so for all of the organizations, there are uh, there are ways for us to purchase in bulk. Uh, we can use um, different types of access that we have. So if people are able to trust us, we'd really appreciate pillsandfoodpantry.com, a donation. You have different ways you can you can um, direct your donation. Additionally, though, if people want to run a warm clothing drive, if they want to um, help with ho- help with housewares, you know, we we will take or direct things to the right place. We you know. We are a city of abundance. It's just not distributed as well as it should be. So we have a free store. We have food services. We're happy to connect with people. And if people don't have money to um, to donate, then they can donate their their labor. We need to sort all those clothes. There, yeah. there's a lot of, a lot of work we can do. Just about a minute left, Lydia. Why don't you tell us this? Tell us what you don't need right now. Is there anything you're getting too much of? We don't need summer clothes. Uh, we don't need, uh, surprisingly, that gets donated very frequently. We mm-hmm. don't need people dropping off random things at police stations um, because it, it adds to the trash problem. Uh, and many people aren't actually allowed to bring many things to the shelter. Yeah, okay. um, so do not drop off random items at police stations. Glad you brought that up. What do you need, um, Diana? Cash is key. <laughs> more money, bring more money. And then we can identify families and things that's needed and get the exact thing that's needed versus yeah. okay but we'll, we'll take it all you'll take that that money is, is <laughs> king as you said we'll leave it there for now diana mitchell the chief program officer at inner voice lydia wong a volunteer for shy welcome and dr evelyn figueroa director of the pilsen food pantry thank you all so much for your time today thank you thank you sasha Ann. This episode was produced by Linnea Dominic and Micah Yason, and it was also edited by Micah Yason and Meha Ahmed. Thank you for listening to Reset. We bring you the latest coverage on the biggest stories happening in our city. If you ever miss a conversation, you can check out wbez.org slash reset to see our entire catalog of interviews. You should also consider liking and subscribing to the pod. That really helps us reach more listeners like you. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.